Time for Swordplay. Alex, Christian activist and author Shane Claiborne is urging churches that have the American flag on display in their sanctuaries to either remove it or else add the other 195 flags from the other nations of the world. You know, Nick, I believe Claiborne followed up later and said to also stop speaking English or else have a translator for every known language on earth. Then he said to stop meeting in a building or else have a building big enough for all of humanity to fit inside. Then he said, actually, we could all just have one flag in one language and and maybe one building tall enough to fit all of humanity in. Maybe a, a little population reduction first, but it could work. Hmm. This Shane Claiborne may be onto something here, Nick. He may be indeed. This is Swordplay. <laughs> we are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, and I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Again, this is Swordplay offering a double-edged perspective on Scripture, and today we are going to dig in to Malachi chapter 2. That's right. It's been a few weeks since we've done Malachi chapter 1, so be sure to check that out first if you haven't listened to it. Now we are in Malachi chapter 2, so let's start off, Nick. Here we have in verse 2, Yahweh is threatening to curse the people and to remove blessings. What blessings does Yahweh threaten to specifically curse here? Yeah, he he says, I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings, the the curse, uh, no doubt that recalls uh, Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 and following. Uh, disobedience would bring an end to the blessings of God, and that would open the floodgate for disaster. And so there are a number of curses that are uh, promised, and uh, so that, that could be in view here. At the same time, one of the functions of the priests was to bless the people with the Aaronic blessing, and you read about that in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. Yahweh lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, the blessings the priests spoke over the people would become a curse. Yahweh would curse them and leave them exposed. It would Uh, He would turn his face from them and withhold good things from them. He would refuse to look upon them and give them peace. And so uh, it may be something similar to or comparable to uh, when Balaam sought to curse Israel, but he could only bless them. And so the priests who seek to bless here in Malachi's time, they will only curse Uh, And so that could be what's going on here. Alex, what do you think? And just a reminder to the audience, again, we covered in chapter one, the first set of um, problems presented in the book that uh, seems to be uh, wrong within the priesthood and even within Israel at large. Uh, Of course, we're talking about uh, post-exile, so it's just Judah now. You know, most of Yahweh's blessings centered around the land. The Fertile Crescent is what it was called, and that's where the Promised Land was located. It did produce very well for crops and for cattle if it had rain. It was 
very hilly. It was very rocky country terrain. There was really not a good way in that day and age to irrigate the land. So without the rains, that fertile crescent quickly turned into a desert. Now, Yahweh promised to bring the rains on the condition of their loyalty. You get that in Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 and following, later on in chapter 28, verse 24. Now, if the rainfall was lessening, then that indicated to the people that they were lacking in covenant loyalty. Lack of rain meant lack of crops and livestock, which in turn meant less availability in both the quantity and quality of sacrifice that could be brought to the temple. And thus, that would perhaps bring more temptation to no longer bring the best sacrifice, to bring in the tithe, but to rather keep the best and the most for yourself. Malachi 2.2 may be referring to the already declining rainfall and productivity of the land and the promise that it will actually get worse. He always says, I've already cursed it and I will curse it. So it's there and it will get worse if they don't take this rebuke to heart. The rainfall was quite literally the covenant barometer for the Israelites. And this may give insight into why the priests allowed blind animals to be sacrificed and why they were profaning the table of Yahweh. Since the Levites have no inheritance land of their own, they were completely dependent upon the sacrifices brought to the temple. These would feed them, these would provide their basic needs. Lack of rain leads to lack of produce, which leads to lack of sacrifices, which leads to a hungry priesthood. And this hungry priesthood led to a lack of covenant faithfulness. And there's another layer here. Another layer of the land blessing is the matter of their own national sovereignty. Though not still in Babylonian captivity, Judah is still under the oversight of the ruling empire in the land. First it was Babylon, now in Malachi's day it's Medo-Persia, then it will be Greece, and finally Rome. The Israelites are technically exiles in their own land, and that must be considered as well when examining the ways in which they have been cursed for their unfaithfulness. So verse 3, Nick, we have a threat, a warning for the offspring. Why are the offspring threatened in verse 3? Yeah, I will rebuke your offspring, says the text. This uh, seems akin to Achan, uh, whose uh, sin had repercussions on his whole household. And you can read about that in uh, Joshua chapter 7. Even God's own self-revelation is that he visits the iniquity of the fathers to the children's children, third and fourth generations, uh, as he says in Exodus 20 and verse 5. And that, so that, that could be in view here, uh, both of those uh, texts. Uh, at the same time, it could be the, the seed in view here, because that's literally what offspring is. Uh, I will rebuke your seed. It could be, uh, as you mentioned, Alex, the crops. So Yahweh is fulfilling a promise that he made back in Deuteronomy 28. Uh, how about verse 38 of Deuteronomy 28? Uh, for example, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. So it uh, could be what's going on here in terms of offspring or seed. Uh, what say you? 
Yes, the word used here for offspring is literally seed, and while this word can refer to one's descendants and even the community at large, which I think we'll see later in verse 15, it can also refer to the produce of the land, which harkens back to Genesis 1, right, where God made the vegetation and the plants and the trees to bear seed after its own kind. It's the same word here for offspring. This, I think, fits the context of Malachi, where Yahweh's sacred space is being defiled. So that causes his presence to draw away from the people and the land, which, as a result, brings drought. By not bringing the rains and blessing the land, Yahweh is essentially cursing the seed of the land. It can't produce. And there's more on this idea in chapter 3. This problem with the seed of the land, I think, will serve as a parallel to another problem mentioned in a few verses uh, that we'll see again in, in verse 15 with the seed of their marriages. So verse 3, we have a graphic description where Yahweh says, I will take the refuse of those animals and spread it on your faces. Now, did God ever come down and, and really spread refuse on their faces? Yeah, refuse. My English standard says dung. Yeah, the refuse or the dung. And that would actually be the, the byproduct of the sacrifices. We're talking about the intestines, uh, the excrement of the animals. I believe uh, what was it, the old King James used to call it the uh, the offal, right? Uh, these byproducts would have been removed uh, from the site of sacrifice, taken outside of the camp, and uh, and burned out there. Uh, and so this is this is vivid imagery that's used by God to express His disgust, His revulsion at how badly the priests are behaving, their their general attitude toward the whole system. Uh, and so, yeah, this is this is uh, God expressing his divine displeasure in a, in a very graphic way. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I think that's right. This does not seem to be literally happening, but the result is the same. The priesthood has become unclean. The priesthood has become spiritually polluted, and they have, as a result, polluted Yahweh's sacred space, making it too toxic for Yahweh to dwell there. And as a result, the feasts are not right in God's eyes. And instead of seeing the sacrifices as a holy representation of the people's dedication to the covenant, instead, Yahweh sees the people as being represented by the insides of the animals, full of refuse and dung. Sometimes, uh, like here, I think figurative language is used purposely to convey more truth than what the literal language would convey. And so that's an important interpretive um, note to remember when reading your Bible. Now, Nick, again in verse 3, we have the idea of uh, the priest being removed, just like the, the excrement was removed outside of the camp. So where will the priests be taken away to? Yeah, the the literal rendering here is uh, you will be taken away to it, uh, to the place outside the camp where the animal entrails and excrement was taken. And so here is God saying in a figure that he would remove them in disgrace from being priests before him. That seems to be uh, the idea here in this text. What say you? Mm. So... It seems maybe we have a twofold removal then. First, Yahweh removes himself from the profaned sanctuary. And then if the priests don't repent, 
he'll remove them from the sanctuary to be tossed out with the refuse. And perhaps that goes into the next verse where the covenant of Levi is being brought into focus and how uh, that covenant could come to an end. So what is the covenant of Levi in verses 4 and 8? Yeah, very interesting uh, concept here when you start digging into it. It, it, was, it was Simeon and Levi, all you good Bible students out there will remember, it was Simeon and Levi who led the slaughter on Hamor and the people of his city in Genesis 34. The other sons of Jacob, they did join in the plundering afterward, but Simeon and Levi are the ones who are ultimately cursed with landlessness for their violence. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, especially the latter portion of verse 7 uh, emphasizes uh, this. So Simeon, he's absorbed into Judah, and uh, Levi ends up being chosen uh, by Yahweh to administer the sacrificial system. And he's specifically told, your portion is me. Yahweh says that. Uh, so uh, Deuteronomy 18, uh, for instance, especially verse 5, uh, emphasizes uh, that aspect as well. Uh, the statute that Aaron's sons would be the priests is first announced in Exodus 28, verse 43. Uh, and uh, after they have given the de- been given the designs of the priest's garments, uh, then you have that announcement. It's going to be Aaron's sons who will be priests uh, before Yahweh. And then it's uh, repeated again in chapter 29 and verse 9. The priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. This is established with Phineas, who is Aaron's son. Uh, and this is in Numbers 25, verses 13 and 14. So uh, the, all this is closely connected. The, the, the tribe of Levi... Uh, the priesthood, they are, in fact, they are so closely connected that it's called the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites uh, in, for example, Numbers, uh, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 29. Uh, So that seems to be what's in back of this business of the covenant of Levi, uh, what I found. What did you find, Alex? Yeah, so essentially the covenant of Levi has two parties, the priesthood, who works at the temple and does other priestly duties throughout the land. And the second party is Yahweh, who ensures that the priesthood will be cared for through the tithes and the sacrifices. If the priesthood fails to uphold their part of the covenant, then it would be expected that Yahweh is no longer obligated to provide for their needs. So instead of repenting, right, the priests are going to choose to game the system instead to get more for themselves, as opposed to acknowledging the root of the problem. So why does God, uh, why does God's curse then help to continue the covenant of Levi? Does Malachi imply here that the covenant of Levi could come to an end in verse 4? Yeah, the, the, the Levitical priesthood, and uh, therefore whatever covenant Levi had uh, with Yahweh, It was going to be fulfilled, and it was fulfilled, uh, once for all in Christ. Uh, For it to continue would mean that it would point as a shadow to the substance that was coming in the better priesthood, in Christ. Uh, So to purify and to cleanse the temple, Yahweh has commanded what he has commanded. 
that's, that's what he's saying here in verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand. Uh, and again, that would all, it would stand, it would continue in order to point to Christ. So that's what I see going on here. Alex, what do you think? I think the curses of Yahweh were designed to be a spiritual warning system. The longer the people remained unrepentant, then the longer the curses would remain and begin to escalate. And it seems that Yahweh's hope is that the priesthood, because of the curses that he's sending, will repent and that things will not need to get worse. But that the priesthood could come to an end, though, uh, seems to be implied by the wording. The Levitical covenant, it was not one-sided. It was not guaranteed forever. It seems to be conditional upon the willingness and faithfulness of the people after all, Yahweh's not the one you have to worry about being faithful. He doesn't break covenant. He keeps it. It's the people who break covenant. So the priesthood was understood as being dissolvable. It could be dissolved. It could be done away with. And that understanding is in the Old Testament. And that understanding provides the foundation for how Christians could now view the church as a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. And it's interesting because you have to have the temple for sacrifices, for the priesthood to function. And so they didn't have that during captivity. They rebuilt it after captivity. Uh, and they have that second temple until it gets destroyed again in AD 70 by Rome. But when that happens, Christianity doesn't have to reinvent itself. They didn't need the temple, but Judaism did. And why was that? It's because Christians already understood that the physical structure of the temple had been rendered hollow and empty since the true temple, which was Jesus Christ, had been destroyed and built up again in three days. And so those who are in Christ are in that temple. Now, why does God speak of Levi in singular form in these verses? Is this the individual Levi? What do you think, Nick? Yeah, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave it to him. Uh, it, further down the rabbit hole, right? Um, if there was a covenant made with Levi the individual, it's unrecorded in Scripture. I mean, he he was chosen by Yahweh. That's that's without doubt. Um, but again, it, in terms of covenant, it, it it may be akin. You know, you you mentioned the. Uh, what the agreement that was made with the Edomites uh, back in uh, when we discussed chapter one, it may be something akin to that. But um, if the individual Levi is in view here, then God's choosing made an impact uh, because he lived before God with awe and respect. It is it was a covenant of fear, the text says, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Uh, so. Uh, could be maybe some uh, off-stage, off-camera <laughs> uh, covenant that may have been made. But at the same time, it's not uncommon to have the name of an individual stand in for a group. Uh, yeah. In this case, it would be the name Levi stand in for the whole tribe. And that's not unusual. Uh, that uh, seems to be in view in Deuteronomy 18 as well. Yahweh has chosen him out of all the tribes uh, in which case, the covenant in view is the statute given to Aaron from Exodus 28, 29, further established by Phineas in Numbers 25, as I discussed before. So uh, that, that could be uh, what's going on here. What say you? Yeah, I think 
I'll uh, dovetail on what you just said because this is actually common in the Bible. The singular name or title uh, being assigned to an entire people group. And we already saw that in Malachi chapter 1, right? Jacob stands in as the name for all Israelites. Esau stands in as the name for all Edomites. Now in Malachi 2, Levi stands in for all priests. Judah stands in in verse 11 for all the men in Judah, because it's actually focused on the men who are sending their wives away. Even in the New Testament, we see the singular standing in for the plurality. The church, singular, stands in for all Christians. So this is a common idea in the Bible where the, the singular head or the fount from which a people come from stands in as the uh, representative title or name for all people or all generations of that people. The biblical writers do this often because they thought more in terms of the collective, while we today in America, we think more in terms of the individual. So did Yahweh have a covenant with the individual named Levi? I don't think so. But that name, Levi, is the, is the placeholder for the entire priesthood. That's what I think is happening here. So Levi or the priesthood stood in awe of Yahweh's name. What does it mean in verse 5, Nick, to stand in awe of Yahweh's name? The term can also be translated as broken in pieces or terror-stricken. It reminds me of Isaiah when in Isaiah 6 he stood in the heavenly temple, he saw King Adonai enthroned, and Isaiah said, I am lost or I am undone. It was a moment of disintegration for him. So Levi had had that moment of clarity where he saw clearly Yahweh's glory and it shook him to his core. Uh, so uh, that's uh, what I think is going on here. What say you, Alex? Yeah, so I don't think this is the individual Levi, but rather God referring to the times past when the priesthood fulfilled their duties and administered righteously the law of God. Granted, <laughs> you read your Old Testament, those windows of priestly faithfulness seem to be few and far between. So the name, though, where it says the name of Yahweh, that is another way of speaking about Yahweh's presence. And even at times a physical manifestation in the figure called the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. See episode one of this season for the archives for that. So where was Yahweh's presence, his name, supposed to dwell? Well, at the heart, it was supposed to dwell in the temple. So it was the privilege of the priesthood to dwell with Yahweh inside that sacred space. That was the ideal. But now it seems that the priesthood finds being in Yahweh's presence tiresome. That's the end of chapter one that we saw. So they find it tiresome. Well, what is their job? What are they supposed to do, Nick? Verses six through seven, what is the job of a priest? Yeah, various functions, sacrifice, stand in the presence of Yahweh, minister on behalf of the people. They were to have a teaching ministry, teaching the people Torah. Uh, that's just to name a few. Give, you can give us some more, right, Alex? Yeah, in Malachi 2 alone, I see at least seven duties of the priest. Uh, in verse 2, they are to take what Yahweh says to heart. In verse 5, they are to hold life and peace in the highest regard. 
Again, in verse 5, they are to hold Yahweh and his presence in the highest regard. In verse 6, they are to practice what they preach. In verse 6, again, they are to turn people back from their sin. In verse 7, they are to preserve knowledge so that they can teach people Yahweh's message. And in verse 9, they are to apply the teaching without partiality. Now, did any Levite ever fulfill such a high calling? I think you may be hard-pressed to find one in the Old Testament. Maybe one here or there. But there will come a time in the future of Malachi's day where a Levite will come and he will fulfill all of these duties and be shown to be the ideal priest. This man, who will be prophesied of in the next chapter, he will clear the way for Yahweh. Jesus will call this man the greatest of all men born of women. And this, of course, was John the Baptist. But in application, I would say that these priestly principles, these duties, would apply well to the job description of church leaders today, and hopefully we will rise up to the calling like John the Baptist did. So, these priests, though, they are being rebuked. In verse 9, God says then, he will make these priests despised. In fact, it says he has already made them despised. How do you think God did that? You know, we have a a vivid description of another time when priests were despised, uh, they were abased before all the people, and it was in the day of Nadab and Abihu, and for them it meant being incinerated on the spot. Hmm. Thanks to God's grace, in Malachi's day, it meant not immediate death on the spot, but it meant they had incurred divine disfavor. Uh, And so uh, that's uh, what I see happening here. What do you think, Alex? Well, I think there are three ways that I can think of that the people would begin to despise the priests. Uh, First, if the rains are lessening, then the people are going to look to their spiritual leadership and think, what did you do? This explanation has support within the text. Um, A second possibility, though, which is a bit more speculative, would be to reinterpret verse 3 about Yahweh rebuking their seed as alluding to God cursing the priests with sterility. Uh, No children means no one to inherit the priesthood, thus endangering the covenant of Levi, and not having children uh, would be quite the public spectacle. A third possibility is that God could simply plant the idea in people's hearts that the priesthood is not right. And that could be done supernaturally or through the preaching of the prophets like Malachi here, which again would be a very public and embarrassing uh, occasion. Another possibility, though, is if you go with the Septuagint, the Septuagint says that he has made them despised among the nations. And so God could be referring then to their continued lack of national sovereignty as the consequence for their continued lack of faithfulness to the covenant. So the priests, major problems here, especially with partiality. Verse 9, Nick, in what ways were the priests showing partiality? Yeah, the priests teaching in Malachi's day, it stands diametrically opposed to Jesus' teaching in his day, 
when someone comes to him asking about uh, taxes, one of the things they preface their question with is, uh, we know you do not show partiality, but rightly teach the way of God. So uh, Jesus, he did not show partiality. He taught rightly and he taught truly. It was correct. It was truth. And so it may be that the priests in Malachi's day, they were teaching inaccurately. They were teaching falsely. And given what we saw back in chapter 1, where they're asking, have we despised you? How have we polluted you? What a weariness. Eh, not outside the realm of possibility. All right. Um, another dimension comes in with the social situation in Malachi's day. Uh, we will see in chapter 3 and verse 5 that wages were being withheld or reduced so that the one being employed was hurt economically. And perhaps to curry favor with the wealthy or with uh, 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 the influential in their society, the priests were limiting their teaching opportunities to just the upper-class elites. And so the little guy was getting ignored, and uh, the, the common folk, they were not being taught. So uh, that could be a bit of the partiality here as well. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I think the partiality reference in this verse is acting as the introduction to the next few verses, which hone in on the issue of divorce. The priesthood could have been making exceptions for who can divorce and who can not divorce, perhaps taking advantage of the ambiguity in the divorce clause of Deuteronomy chapter 24, interpreting and implying the law in favor of, oh, I don't know, perhaps the highest donors to the temple, or in favor of the priests themselves who could then cash in on another dowry. And that same partiality then could be applied to their allowance of Jewish males to marry foreign women, which was a, which was a huge problem according to Nehemiah and even happened among the priesthood itself. That's in Nehemiah 13, verses 23 and following. Nehemiah in that passage says the priesthood had become defiled and corrupt, specifically because of these foreign marriages and the potential for breaking covenant because of them. And they, Nehemiah cites Solomon as the case in point. Now, there is a recalling of their identity and God's creation of them. So let's think about the timing here as we interpret this verse in verse 10. Nick, when did God create them? Yeah, them being the uh, we and the us here in verse 10, spilling over into the next verse, we see Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. This uh, is all language for the nation. So in view here is uh, the nation. So, yeah, how far back does it go uh, when God brought the nation into the land in Joshua's day? Uh, or how about when he gave them his law over in Exodus chapter 20? Or when he redeemed them from Egypt, Exodus 14? Or how about when he called the patriarch, specifically Abraham, I mean, you do have this close proximity here to the one father, uh, and some have pointed in that direction to uh, Abraham for interpreting that, uh, and that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. And of course, who really is their father? Capital F. Well, uh, Deuteronomy 32.6 says Yahweh is their father uh, who created them. So does this reach back even further, maybe even into eternity, uh, that God is father and creator, and, and having those uh, two... Uh, titles for God linked closely. That's uh, that, that also occurs in 
Isaiah 64 and verse 8. So Father Creator, those two seem to go together quite often. Given the progression of this verse, it would seem we can pinpoint the creation of the people to some time between the call of Abraham and the establishment of the covenant at Sinai, assuming Father is Abraham and the establishment of uh, uh, and, and the covenant of your fathers is Sinai, is making those assumptions. God's creation of the people would seem to point to the time when the people of Israel went to Egypt and their subsequent enslavement when they grew very numerous. Of course, such a scheme only works relying upon the Hebrew. Uh, if you're following the Septuagint, uh, it, uh, for some reason, reverses the order of these two clauses. Uh, did not one God create you? Is there not one Father, or Father, capital F, of all of you? So, given the parallelism here, I mean, it could be that I've missed it entirely, that a Abraham's not in view at all, that Father should be taken as capital F Father, and it's parallel with God in the next phrase. Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. When did he do that, Alex? I'm going to take on two points of time to answer. First, Yahweh as father to Israel, I think, does go back to Abraham. So you have both Father Abraham, but also Yahweh as father of the nation of Israel, because Abraham, as Paul says, was as good as dead. He could not have children, but God intervened and created a new nation from this one man. Yahweh was already then their father before the Exodus. Thus he tells Pharaoh to let my son Israel go. That's Exodus 4.22. But the creation aspect, I think, points to the crossing of the Red Sea itself. As Yahweh created all things through the taming of the waters and appearing of dry land in Genesis 1, so he creates Israel in the moment that he splits the Red Sea and causes them to cross on dry land. Malachi, I think here, is honing in on the very foundation of their existence and of their identity by calling the meta-narrative of their people group back to Father Abraham, back to their rescue at the Exodus. And hopefully, this will inspire them to repent and to renew their commitment to the covenant. So, these priests and these people, they have dealt treacherously. And that word is used often here, verse 10, verse 11, verses 14 through 16. Nick, what does it mean to deal treacherously? Yeah, five times it's used by my count. Uh, my English standard renders it faithless. Eh, that's all right, but treacherous, man, it's a good, strong word. Uh, deception and acting covertly. Those are both involved in this term. The context for treachery here is in regards to covenants, especially the covenant of marriage. So covenant breaking generally is involved in the term. Here it refers to the breaking of marital covenants. It is playing fast and loose with the covenants made before God. In addition, their treachery hurt the wife of your youth, says verse 15. So here are Jewish men wooing and winning the affections of one of their Jewish women, their Jewish sisters, and then entering into covenant a marital covenant with her, only to turn around and serve her with divorce papers so he could go and marry another woman, perhaps even a foreign woman. That's cold-blooded, man. So heinous and callous were these actions. They're actually called 
an abomination right there in verse 11. Okay, so treacherous then, pointing towards the way in which these men were treating their wives, and then it follows that up in verse 11 about how Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. What does that mean? How, how did Judah marry the daughter of a foreign god, and why was this wrong? Yeah, these were marriages with foreign women, uh, the daughters of people who worship a false god. Intermarriage with non-Israelites, that was a problem in Ezra uh, and also in Nehemiah as well. So these are those who are outside of the covenant, these, these foreign women. And so this practice was forbidden by God in Torah, Exodus 34, verses 12 through 16, Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. Reasons for such separation are to keep God's covenant people free from idolatry, since the temptation would, to, would be to learn the ways of the nations of those with whom they were intermarrying. And in addition, Ezra says, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land over in Ezra 9, verse 2. This included the priests and the Levites, says Ezra in Ezra 9, verse 1. And so such language points to the fact that the Holy One of Israel was to come through a holy lineage. Uh, so that's what I see is going on here, why it's wrong. What say you, Alex? I agree. And, you know, that's not to say there weren't exceptions, especially looking sure. at Matthew's genealogy for Jesus. You have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all Gentile women. But these women also had given their loyalty to Yahweh. Their backstory is specifically given to show that uh, an exception was made for these noteworthy women. And it seems that the danger was in the priests giving blanket approval, with partiality as well, of foreign marriages without any qualifications, which throughout Israel's history has a notorious reputation for bringing disaster throughout the nation. That happens multiple times. And so it is a logical fear and caution. So, Nick, how would they know then they're bringing their offerings, but they're upset. How would they know if Yahweh did not accept their offering in verse 13? Yeah, with weeping, groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. The text is somewhat ambiguous on, on how they would know, but perhaps the weeping and the groaning points to the prayers and the petitions that they were making to Yahweh for help, but there's no help that comes. So, they would bring their offerings with much tearful prayer, but because of their sinful lives, God refused to hear and therefore did not act to reverse or improve their station. So that, that may be what's uh, going on here, what I see. What say you, Alex? Yeah, again, based on what we'll see in chapter 3 about God opening up the windows of heaven, in other words, the rain, I assume that uh, they know the offerings are not being accepted because the rains have lessened, they're getting uh, less frequent, and the crops are shrinking year after year. And so I think they have that, uh, that way of telling how they stand in covenant with Yahweh. How then have they dealt treacherously with their wives, and why would they do so in verse 14? Getting into the, to the motive here. Yeah, I've dealt uh, with uh, the how uh, in the previous question. They, they, they're betraying their covenants uh, to their wives and to God. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to the why question. Why would they do uh, that? Well, as to why, I think Jesus hones in on the reason for divorce. It's hard-heartedness. Matthew 19, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, and he goes back to uh, Deuteronomy for that. Specifically, here in Malachi's day, their, their hard-heartedness is rooted in their inability or, or their refusal to recognize their wives as members of of the covenant community. You go back to uh, verse uh, 10. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The one another here are husbands acting faithlessly or treacherously to their wives who are fellow members of the covenant of our fathers. The are here showing joint membership. The wife was more than mere property to be disposed of at will. She is your companion and a fellow member of the covenant. Uh, so that's what I see going on here as to why. What What do you think, Alex? Yeah, it also says in this verse that Yahweh calls himself as a witness to their marriage covenants. He remembers your promise, and he holds you accountable. And it's interesting that when Yahweh sent these people a rebuke, that instead of repenting, they double down and they say, well, I guess we'll do things on our own now that God won't help us. And they weep and cry. He's not going to help us. He's not going to help. What a foolish line of thinking. If one does not acknowledge the heart of the problem, then they will inevitably blame God for their own problems and then turn to their own ways, which only increases their self-destructive behavior. This is why the beginning of the chapter implored them to take this to heart. Take this to heart. Don't be hard-hearted. Now, verse 15, not everybody is acting this way. There are those who, who have not deserted their wives, who have not acted treacherously, because they have a remnant of the Spirit. Now, Nick, what does it mean to have a remnant of the Spirit in verse 15? Yeah, the, the whole verse, verse 15, is a verse with myriad exegetical difficulties. So uh, yeah. buckle up. I'm going to get a little technical. <laughs> yeah. um, Hopefully not too technical, but um, so a number of questions come to the surface here. Uh, what is statement? What is question? Uh, which which parts of these is statement? Which is question? Uh, who is the one here? Uh, did he not make them one? Um, most say God, uh, but uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, later on, what is the one God seeking? It's literally what is one seeking? Um, is it God or? Uh, is that reference to Abraham earlier? Is it, uh, what about spirit here? Is it capitalized spirit or is it lowercase spirit? And in that sense, is it human spirit or divine spirit? And if it's human, what does it mean? If it's divine, what does it mean? And then how are those two clauses related to one another? And how about that whole uh, godly offspring or literally seed of God? Um, and appealing to the, the Septuagint, it only further exacerbates matters. Um Literally, here's, here's a rendering of the verse as best I can put it together. Uh, and not one, or he, did make. And he has or had a remnant of spirit, lowercase or capital. Got to make the judgment there. And what is or was, what is the one seeking seed of God? That's... <laughs> 
that's a that's a very wooden literal translation. Uh, but that I, I hope that shows you this is there's a lot of difficulties. That's here. so hard. Yeah. Uh, however, we understand these phrases, it should lead to the command at the end of the verse: guard your spirit and uh, be faithful to your marital covenant. Right. Uh, so, however we understand, it's got to lead to that. Now, there are two primarily primary interpretations uh, concerning this verse. First, understanding one here as a human subject. So, the text reads, "No one with a remnant of spirit would act this way," something like that. And so, the, the spirit here is uh, human good reason or human sound judgment. So, the one with good sound judgment would desire godly offspring. So, guard your soul. Be faithful to your wife. That's a possibility. The second understanding is to understand one as referring to the unity of marriage. So the text reads, Did not God make them one with a remnant of spirit? And this now is a reference to his power. Uh, there's enough power in reserve even, so to speak, uh, to do this. And then continuing, so why only one? One partner, in other words. God who is implied as the subject there, is seeking offspring. And of course, both of these interpretations are not without issues. Against the the first understanding, uh, the the first option, understanding spirit as intelligence, that's actually a minority view, and it has very scant support elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. So that's one difficulty for that. Uh, In terms of the second option, this interpretation makes more sense if the sin was uh, polygamy and not divorce. And by the way, that's only the beginning of the issues against both of these views. So, uh, yeah, you're both you're working uphill with both of those. If I had to pick one though, uh, the second option I think has a lot going for it, especially the connection between the oneness of marriage, and I think that echoes back to Genesis where um, he made the two one flesh. Uh, so uh, that's where I would lean. Uh, what do you think, Alex? What say you? Well, it's like you said. It- difficult verse this one and the next verse so I'll, I'll give you my take here's my two cents i think the remnant of the spirit is referring to the spiritual life that god gives to those who are in covenant with him in other words men who are treating their wives treacherously by throwing them out to marry another have broken covenant with not just their wives but with yahweh as a result of their actions after all yahweh was the witness between that covenant and this spiritual life through covenant is what God intended for all the tribes of Israel to have. But of course, time had dwindled them down to just Judah now, and a small number of them seemed to be keeping covenant. Thus, just a remnant now have this spiritual life from Yahweh. I would liken this idea to sanctification in the New Testament. Uh, covenant faithfulness draws you closer to Yahweh's presence, which brings life in your spirit, but unfaithfulness does the opposite. It removes Yahweh's presence and uh, removes that remnant of spiritual life from your from your soul, from your being. So that's the trajectory I'll be taking, but there's still more to be said about these verses. Nick, so what does it mean to have godly offspring? Of course, there are different ways you could translate that. So who was seeking this, the godly offspring? How did they find it? Verse 16. Well, if the uh, above exegesis for option two uh, that I laid out before is accurate, then God is the subject of the verb seeking. 
God is seeking uh, offspring. And of course, remember, God's original command to humans was be fruitful, multiply. So this could be understood as a recapitulation of the original mandate for Malachi's day. At the same time, God's seeking offspring could be that he desires his holy race to procreate in order that Messiah could come into the world at just the right time for uh, seed of God to work. I think would require a, a little different exegesis. But if Elohim is to be taken with Zerah, the, the seed there, then it could be seed from God, in which case children are gifts from God, which you have support for that elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. So, uh, again, uh, more fun exegetical footwork here going <laughs> on, but uh, uh, it's, it's important. And I hope one thing I hope that you get impressed with, uh, diligent listener in, re- in this regard, is uh, the amount of work that goes into producing new translations. Uh, and it is very difficult work, and so my hat's off to, I know people get wrapped around, you know, it's got to be this version. But to produce a good, accurate translation, that's hard work. Yeah, my hat's off to all those committees that produce the Bibles in English that we read. Because uh, Hebrew, that's tough work. <laughs> it is. So, and so is Greek, by the way. But uh, anyway, uh, sidebar there, back online here. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what does it mean to have godly offspring? Who's seeking this? And how would they find it, Alex? So I'm going to try and tie back in verse 3. So the word for seed occurs both here in verse uh, 15, 16, and in verse 3, as we noted earlier. Now, if Malachi intended a parallel idea to be seen, if this was intentional, then the barrenness of the land would somehow parallel the barrenness of their marriages. And how would that barrenness in their marriage be seen? How would that be manifested? Well, as you noted, it, it could refer to procreation, and if so, I think that alludes to the idea of perhaps sterility or infertility problems as a result of their unfaithfulness. But I also think the barrenness, and I probably prefer this idea, the barrenness could be that the children are not being raised in a godly environment, which puts the entire community at risk as each generation passes by with behaviors of covenant unfaithfulness like divorce, which you could see increasing generation to generation, which eventually begins to break down the family unit within the culture as a whole. I think we're living through that right now in our own day and time and place. So in other words, a faithful community perpetuates spiritual life, that remnant of the spirit, but an unfaithful community perpetuates spiritual death. And that's, I guess, the... the the complex of ideas that I see going on in these two verses. Not to say there aren't difficulties. So verses 15 and 16, another difficulty. What does it mean then, Nick, when it says to take heed to your spirit? Or guard yourselves in your spirit. That's uh, my English standard here. Yeah, it's, uh, so the, the basic form of the verb here uh, for guard It was actually used earlier back in verse 7 in relation to the priests guarding their teaching or guarding knowledge. Uh, It was also used in verse 9 for keeping God's ways. So context points to watching one's self for an attitude which threatens your your, your marital covenant. Uh, it, uh, It means guarding yourself against an attitude that 
holds to a lowered view of covenant. It means watching yourself so that you don't take your marital covenant for granted. Hmm. Now, such an attitude, I mean, yeah, you can find that out in the world, but that kind of attitude should never be found among God's people. Uh, Tragically, it uh, does come home to roost far more often than we like to admit, but it shouldn't. It should have no place among God's people in Malachi's day or in our day today. Uh, So that's what I see about take heed to your spirit. What do you think, Alex? If what I said earlier about the spirit, the remnant of the spirit, being the spiritual life given by Yahweh, then I think it's akin to when we see the New Testament saying to guard your sanctification. Uh, Romans 6.22, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Hebrews 12.4. And as the Septuagint puts it in Malachi 2.16, it says, never desert your wife. Never desert her. The idea being that deserting your wife ruins your sanctification. So, Nick, we're in verse 16, and there are more difficulties. What is the correct translation of verse 16? (laughs) Correct. Uh, Yeah, more exegetical fun here, right? Um, Is it, I hate divorce, following, say, the New American Standard? Or is it, he hates divorce, uh, or as my English standard says, the man who uh, does not love his wife. That's uh, that's not even very good either. But the, like like a, a a person hates divorce. That's the idea here. Um, again, the, the differences between God hating divorce and one who does violence, as the rest of the verse goes on to say, or if this is a reference to a man who covers himself in violence by divorcing the wife he hates, mm. and that's the idea. He. He hates uh, even his wife. So, uh, typically, verse sixteen is appealed uh, appealed to as a discussion ender. God hates divorce. Period. Malachi two sixteen. There you go. As though the debate is settled. However, if that is the case, how is it that God Himself will engage in the very thing that He hates? And I'm thinking of Jeremiah chapter three, where. He serves his people with a certificate of divorce. But as our discussion here has hopefully borne, it is a specific kind of divorce that is being talked about here that God hates, assuming that he is the subject of the the verb here, hate. Namely, he hates treacherous divorce, wherein a man leaves his wife so that he might marry another. And I wonder if that understanding has any bearing upon the things Jesus taught in the Gospels. Hmm, hmm, for another time. (laughs) The parallel construction here of he hates and then he covers uh, in this verse, it indicates the same subject is in view. So if God hates divorce, then he covers his garment in violence? Eh, It seems more reasonable to take the subject as the people who are being indicted by God the men dealing treacherously with their marriage covenants. Mm -hmm. So they hate and divorce is how it could be understood. And so they cover their garment in violence. One commentator went so far even as to translate the first phrase, uh, first phrase of this verse, divorce is hateful. And that may be close to what's uh, going on here. 
At the same time, given the overall tenor of this passage, I think it's reasonable to conclude that, yeah, God does hate divorce, especially divorce which is rooted in hard-hearted treachery, as these divorces here in Malachi's day were. Uh, so, correct translation? <laughs> uh, maybe, but uh, a <laughs> lot of fun exegesis going on there. So, as a way of summarizing, depending on which way the verse gets translated, what do you think it means for God to hate divorce, or what do you think it means for a man to hate and divorce his wife? I'm persuaded that God's settled disposition toward divorce, which is the the formal termination of covenant vows between husband and wife, I believe his settled disposition toward divorce is hatred. And the reason God hates divorce is because of what it does to people. It turns men and women into instant attorneys, harboring bitterness and malice toward one another. And more than that, it causes people to break vows they took before God and others that he intended for them to keep. Most of all, God himself is a divorcee, so to speak, and he knows the pain. At a level no human could experience the pain of betrayal, and brokenheartedness. And so for a man to hate and divorce his wife is to do violence to his covenant to such a degree that his garment is stained with violence so that he can't even enter God's presence. Uh, It is sin. It is a black mark on a, uh, in this case, on the man's pure garment. Um, And so that's Based on Malachi 2.16, that's where I see God's settled disposition toward divorce, why he hates it. Uh, what do you think, Alex? So going back to Malachi chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that he loves Jacob, he hated Esau, I appeal again to what I spoke of in that section, that the, the language common again, within covenants from the ancient Near East, included these kinds of words, love and hate. In these covenants, love means loyalty. Hate means without loyalty, without covenant. Thus, it does make more sense here that it is the man who hates his wife and thus divorces her. In other words, he hates because that is covenant language for being disloyal. The man is disloyal to his wife, thus he divorces her and covers his garment with wrong. What garment? Well, that's probably an allusion to his own spirit and the life within his spirit that had been given by Yahweh. The New Testament uses the same allusion when it says to keep your garment unstained from the world. That's Jude verse 23 and also Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. So my vote for the translation problem goes to the translation which says that he, a man that hates his wife and divorces her, covers his garment with violence. His hating, his disloyalty, and the divorce go together. He is damaging his own spirit. That's why those with the remnant of the spirit don't do that. But I do agree that God's disposition in general towards divorce is disapproval. You don't have to have the verse say God hates divorce to know that that is God's disposition towards divorce. Especially the kind of scenario here in Malachi where men are deserting their wives 
just so that they can have a foreign wife and possibly even make a profit from another dowry. And I, I guess uh, just by way of uh, pastoral con- concern, um, while it is God's settled disposition toward divorce, that he hates divorce, um, and it, it does bring with it uh, not only the, the physical consequences of the end of the marital covenant, but also certain spiritual uh, consequences as well. I don't want to leave the impression, and uh, Alex, you can address this as well if you're inclined to. I don't want to leave the impression there's not a road back. That uh, when, uh, if you are a divorcee, that now all of a sudden you're, you're it's, it's done. You can't find your way back into uh, the presence of God. Um, there is, and there's a lot that can be. Uh, brought to bear on this subject. I've even written a position paper that's like 25 pages long addressing a number of the texts that deal with the subject of uh, divorce and remarriage. Uh, But uh, God, specifically to the people in Malachi, is saying this, and I think Alex is right when he says, this warning is intended to shake them up and get them to repent. Uh, But this is not the only text that deals with this subject. And so uh, uh, I do believe that God's grace is available to uh, those who have to experience and go through uh, a divorce. Uh, and um, and I know that this particular situation here doesn't address all the other situations concerning uh, divorce and remarriage and those sorts of things. So... Um, while it is a principle, generally speaking, that yes, God hates divorce, uh, there are other principles that also come into play in terms of the road back and, and, and kind of what that looks like. And it may even be a case-by-case type basis, the principles of Scripture guiding us. So just a, a pastoral uh, plug-in here that I wanted to uh, toss in the mix as we consider a very heavy subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. The uh, The topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is a big can of worms, right? <laughs> and there are many positions that one can take, which um, we can't really unpack right here. But I do think it is important to recognize, first, the textual difficulty and translation difficulty uh, versus uh 15 and 16 and then also the specific scenario happening which is these men are deserting their wives um they are the ones who want to marry another for one reason or another and uh it's specific they want to marry foreign women they want to um perhaps use that opportunity to profit and they have a disregard for the wife of their youth, the one they've made a promise and a covenant to, and that kind of hard-heartedness, that kind of callous, cold-blooded behavior, yeah, that is strongly disapproved of by God. And uh, I just wanted to bring in the, you know, the hatred language that it seems more consistent with Malachi and with the language of covenants that it is the man who is hating his wife by divorcing her because it's not the emotional aspect of hating. It's the breaking of loyalty, the breaking of covenant. That's how hate is being used. And so um, so I would say that's why I say God disapproves in general of divorce. But 
there are many more passages to also take that into consideration, not only in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament. And guess what, folks? There doesn't really seem to be a consensus on this topic, even within the first several hundred years of Christianity. There's a wide variety of positions. So it's not an easy topic. It's very difficult. So, Nick, we are at the last verse of the chapter, which really serves as the introduction to the next chapter. And there are things that the people are saying. They are wearying uh, to Yahweh. And the question is, who are the ones wearying Yahweh and what's wrong with their words? Yeah, you have wearied Yahweh with your words. The you here is general. And again, it seems aimed at the whole nation which is in rebellion, and they are disobedient to Yahweh. The prophetic elaboration, which follows the people's challenge, how have we wearied him? That goes into chapter 3, where judgment upon the nation is mentioned uh, in verse 5. And again, the general phrase, O children of Jacob, is used in verse 6 to address the audience. The gravity of their indictment is that it is diametrically opposed to God's word and is therefore blatantly blasphemous. All who act dishonestly are an abomination to Yahweh your God, says Deuteronomy 25, 16. In addition, questioning God's justice. uh, Where is the God of justice, they say at the end of this verse. Questioning God's justice, that is similar, uh, that that is a similar rejection. And it's a denial of his revealed character as a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. So, double blasphemy, all right? You get a double whammy on this. Uh, And that's what's wrong with their words. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Yeah, the main problem, I think, is that they're looking at their circumstances, which they caused, by the way, by profaning Yahweh's sacred space, which then causes his presence to withdraw from that space. And then they blame Yahweh, because of the proliferation of evil that increases when Yahweh withdraws his presence. Hey, here's an idea. How about you stop profaning Yahweh's space so that he'll come back? How about you acknowledge your sin and repent? No. Instead, they harden their hearts and they blame Yahweh for evil people getting away with everything and justice going unmet. If they would just read their Psalms, they would already know that evil never goes unpunished forever, and ultimate justice will be met in the end at the final judgment. But it's a classic case of spiritually blind people creating their own problems and then blaming God for their problems. That's a very foolish line of thinking. We are implored not to think that way in the Bible. And that wraps up Malachi chapter 2. And now we're going to go to our featured creature. Featured creature. And this week's featured creature uh, or creatures are the watchers. The watchers. So, Nick, talk to us for a second. Who are the watchers? Literally, one who is awake. Watchers are mentioned in the Bible only in the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 4, verses 13, 17, and 23. In these verses, watchers are also called holy ones, and their abode is in heaven since they come down from heaven. These are angelic beings who keep watch over human activities. This 
these, uh, uh, this particular scene, you have a watcher who comes down, and he functions in bringing the heavenly decree, the sovereign decision by the Most High, as verse 24 of Daniel chapter 4 says, concerning Nebuchadnezzar, with which the watchers naturally concur. Uh, with God's sovereign decree. So much elaborate speculation can be found in extra-biblical text where watchers are evil or fallen angels. You see this especially in First Enoch in Jubilees. Uh, Alex will further extrapolate uh, from those uh, in just a moment. However, in the Bible, watchers are holy and they are portrayed only positively. So, featured creature, Alex, watchers. Have at it. The watchers. <laughs> the watchers are holy ones, as you mentioned. However, in Daniel, uh, the watchers don't just deliver the decree. They make the decree. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. That's verse 17 in uh, Daniel chapter 4, I think. Yes. Yep. This does not violate Yahweh's sovereignty because it was his idea to have a council of watchers in the first place. In fact, I think it's the mark of a good father who shares his sovereignty with his children, of course, with some oversight. But children still have free will and can choose to rebel, something Yahweh has seen not just with his human creation, but also his angelic creation. The sons of God who took women and birthed the Nephilim from Genesis chapter 6 that was interpreted within Second Temple literature as angels who mated with human women and gave birth to giants. This is abundantly clear in the Septuagint and even the early church fathers, but as you noted, much more elaboration was made in writings found in the Dead Sea Scrolls like First Enoch, Jubilees, uh, and the Book of the Giants. First Enoch says that these rebellious angels of Genesis 6 were classified as watchers. Not all of the watchers, of course, but a small contingent of rebellious watchers, 200 of them who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. Now, the good watchers, they have a job description. They watch. Go figure. What? It is likely these who are called the eyes of Yahweh in the book of Zechariah. Those whom Yahweh sent to patrol the earth, Zechariah 1.10. The eyes of Yahweh which range to and fro throughout the earth, Zechariah 4.10. In cosmic imagery, these eyes are seen as the stars of the constellations which circle the earth, looking down on human activity, reporting everything back to Yahweh. Now the evil watchers who rebelled left this lofty position in the heavens and took on physical form and used women to birth giants. These giants terrorized mankind and cannibalized them. In the Watcher tradition, these angelic beings also taught mankind, quote, knowledge rejected from heaven, which included things like hallucinogenic drugs, abortificients, weapon-making and warfare, witchcraft, and sorcery, just to give you a sampling. These activities exponentially sped up the proliferation of evil on the earth and among mankind, which as a result brought about the flood. But don't worry, these evil watchers were bound and imprisoned by the archangels, kept in chains of gloomy darkness under the earth, awaiting the day of judgment upon which they will be destroyed. It is a spiritual death row, if you will. So, Jiminy Cricket, 
When you wish upon a star, just remember that if that star is evil, it could descend to the Earth and cause a chain reaction which nearly destroys all of humanity. You know what? On second thought, just stop wishing upon the stars, okay? Prayer is much more effective. Hmm. Pray to Yahweh. And that is the featured creature. All right. Yeah. There you have it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do you have anything for our audience, Nick? Want to invite you to go into the Apple Podcast uh, store and uh, search Swordplay, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. Share it on social media if you are so inclined. If you have a question, you can actually text it in to us at the Swordplay text line, 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Or if they want to contact us via email, Alex, where can they send that email? Yeah, you can email swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you and uh, correspond. We uh, are appreciative of your time and the effort that you put into listen to the podcast, O Diligent Listener. And so we welcome you back next time as we dive into Malachi chapter 3. But for now, thank you for tuning in to uh, another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on Scripture. Thank you.